Hello everyone, my name is Tom Stewart. And this is Riley McDonald. Welcome to Hammer Time. A new fangled podcast for old fangled horror, where today we are going to watch as the boy who lived takes on an even greater challenge than Lord Voldemort, a state law. In Harry Potter and the Billable Hours. Horrocruxes. You're a lawyer, Harry. Draco malfeasance. Okay. Okay. I think I've got it out of my system. I think we can actually promise a minimum of Harry Potter jokes as we talk about the 2012 Hammer Horror film, The Woman in Serious Black. The Woman in Black. Crud. Oh, God. Um, of the Hammer movies since their revival in the mid-2000s, this is probably their biggest hit. Certainly the most Hammer of the movies they've done. A very sort of gothic, haunted house style. Yeah, and we are going to get into how it differs from the Hammer Horror canon. But but at the outset, it is very much a part of that canon. It has that same pseudo-Victorian, or in this case, pseudo-Edwardian vibe. It is all about ghosts and history and atmosphere and spooky things happening in a terrifying old house. Yes, and so... It was a pretty big hit when it came out. It spawned a sequel that neither of us have seen, but will eventually get to. I believe it was the most successful British horror film in the last 20 years. Yeah, it's it was it made over a hundred million dollars um, after it, it worldwide. Like it was a pretty big hit. Now quantity does not necessarily imply quality, as we will get into here. The market has spoken, Riley. <laughs> and this property has been successful monetarily since the 80s when it was originally a novel by Susan Hill. And there have been numerous adaptations of this property. Uh, in the late 80s, we got both a screenplay written by Nigel Neal for a made-for-TV movie and the second longest-running play on the West End, an adaptation of this novel. And then finally we get this film as well. And they're all different, but they're loosely grouped around a central plot. So what all of these various um, versions of this story share is that it's about a young lawyer who goes to a spooky house that's haunted by a titular woman in black. What this uh, version of the story does is it focuses on the young barrister, Arthur Kipps, played by Daniel Radcliffe of Harry Potter fame, a grieving lawyer. His wife dies in childbirth and he is left to raise his son, whom he loves, but is still very much shaken up by his wife's death. He's sent by his law firm out to the English countryside um, to put the uh, affairs of the estate of this woman who has just died in order. So he's ordered to go to this giant, empty, spooky mansion where Mrs. Drablow, the owner of the house, has just died and make sure everything is ready for its auction. And when he arrives, the town is immediately hostile toward him for reasons that we quickly find out have to do with the haunting of this woman in black. Yeah, every time somebody enters into the house, which is known as Eel Marsh House, a child in the surrounding village dies. And so nobody wants him to enter the house to disturb the ghost that lives there. With the exception of a prominent man in town, Samuel Daly, played by the always excellent Kieran Hines, who is a sort of modern, rational man who has no time for uh, rural superstitions, and he is totally cool with Arthur going to the house and putting the affairs in order. You can tell he's a modern rational man because he owns a car. The first car in the county, in fact. So the movie is basically then Arthur 
being haunted by the woman in black inside the house, the children of the town dying as sort of revenge for this area being disturbed, and Arthur slowly putting together the, I, I guess you would call it a mystery, although it's not particularly mysterious, nor is it interesting, the events that led to the creation of this ghostly woman in black. Yeah, this is basically survival horror, as Daniel Radcliffe just tries to do an honest day's labor <laughs> inside the house and is consistently harassed by a ghost. As Radcliffe's character is doing his work in the house, he reveals a mystery about the history of this house. Earlier in the house's history, Drablo adopted the illegitimate son of her unmarried sister. Her sister slowly goes mad, and upon witnessing from the window of Ilmarsh House the accidental drowning of her son, she ends up hanging herself, and now, as a ghost, takes revenge upon the children of the local village every time her house is disturbed. Uh, yeah, so this very much feels like a classic ghost haunted house story. And particularly a classic English ghost slash haunted house story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's the, you know, decrepit, shadow-filled mansion, and the not only the ghost that haunts it, but the sense of unseemly history that populates this house, of insanity and cruelty and um, suicide. Uh, the isolated country estate, and this one is pretty innovatively isolated in that it is, it's on a kind of island off of the mainland of the village. Every afternoon, the tide rolls in and completely cuts the estate and the village off from each other, which is a pretty effectively eerie way of isolating Arthur from any sort of help. You have the superstitious villagers who are afraid of the wrath of the specter. You have all of these sort of essential components of uh, a haunted house story. I think the other thing that makes it really English is... Well, it's the biscuits and the tea. Oh, we're getting... about a British people yes. in it. And it's a particularly British or English version of the haunted house story as well, because it focuses very much on keeping up appearances socially. We have the history of a woman who adopts her sister's illegitimate son. We have the villagers who are trying to keep up appearances and not admit to this thing that they are apparently irrationally frightened of. Even Daniel Radcliffe's stiff upper lip in the face of his his wife's death. He's trying to hold his world together where it's clear in those moments when he's alone that he is on the verge of a complete breakdown. So this is a very stereotypically English ghost story. Yeah, this draws on the style of ghost story that is told by somebody like M.R. James, early 20th century English short story writer who is very famous for writing these antiquated sort of ghost tales about the past coming back to haunt usually sort of bumbling academics in stories like Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, or The Haunted Doll's House, or to a lesser extent, something like Casting the Runes. Or on the other hand, another James we have is someone like Henry James uh, and his most famous story, The Turn of the Screw, which is similarly about children in peril, isolated Victorian mansions, and the sort of um, potential threat of the ghostly figure. So this is very much in the tradition and style, as you said, Tom, of the English ghost story. And intentionally so, I think, because along with M.R. James and Henry James, we have the director of this movie, James Watkins. All the pieces fall into place. The problem being that this movie draws a little bit too deeply from the well. This isn't a movie, it is an encyclopedia of horror cliches. Yeah, there are moments uh, of this movie where, like, 
Arthur will turn and the woman in black will be in the corner and then she'll fly at him as though she's on a string where it feels less like you're watching a movie and more like you're at the haunted house rides at Canada's Wonderland. As per rule 25-A of the Canadian Podcasters and Broadcasters Council, we are obligated to have at least 15% Canadian content in every episode. We thank you for your patience. There's a good portion of this movie, about 15 minutes, seemed like an hour, in the middle of this movie that feature nothing except for Radcliffe going from room to room, discovering that rooms have changed just a little bit every time he walks into them. We've got the biggest hits of horror films from the last 30 years. We've got creepy doll-like toys. We've got dissonant music. We've got horrific photos that accidentally have a ghost hovering in the background of them. We've got doors opening just out of the view of the main characters. What Tom is saying is that you don't need to watch this movie so much as just imagine the lamest and most overused tropes in uh, horror movies of the last 30 years, and you'll get the gist of it. (laughs) And I think one of the most grievous cliches that they bring to bear upon the old Hammer aesthetic is the jump scare. Oh my God, the jump scares. Look, because we have the collected directors of the world listening in on our podcast here. So look, guys, as long as we got you here, stop doing this. It's so lame, so tired and overused, and it's not scary. No, it isn't. And what I think is even worse about this movie is that the boy who lived isn't actually seeing these jump scares. Half of the jump scares that we see in this movie are something appearing behind Daniel Radcliffe. So Radcliffe doesn't even get the chance to act surprised or horrified it's just supposed to be us frightened for him it's the death of horror for me because as um as somebody else much smarter than us said jump scares aren't scary they are startling a sudden spike in music and a flash on the screen is the first time at least going to make you kind of react just from the unexpectedness of it yeah this movie uses one almost every five minutes and it's just by the end they become straight up comical One of these moments that almost becomes comical is you have Arthur looking out a window and a screaming woman appears on the other side, but it's so shoddily done. This movie telegraphs its jump scares very obviously. It just is funny rather than being scary. It doesn't even succeed at being startling, which I guess is the lazy man's way of trying to make a horror movie nowadays. Yeah, this movie will consistently focus in tight, go quiet, there'll be a beat, And then, ah, it's a ghost. It'll be some kind of jump scare. And it's incredibly predictable. Tom, you said this a couple minutes ago, and I certainly agree. What I I guess I'm not necessarily opposed to all jump scares all the time. I think a movie needs to earn its jump scare. So a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Horror of Dracula. And there's a moment that is kind of like a jump scare where Van Helsing very suddenly appears out of nowhere on screen. And it kind of makes you jump because it's startling. That is the only jump scare in that movie. Everything else is based on atmosphere and character interaction. And this movie's characters are so thin and uninteresting. And its mystery is so half-baked that the only way they can keep the audience interested is a continuous barrage of loud music and flashing faces on the screen. It's incredibly annoying. And my problem with jump scares is just one of pacing. It seems to me that a horror movie and a comedy movie are actually quite close in the way that they have to be structured. 
there is always the possibility in a comedy movie that a joke is going to fall flat. There is always the possibility in a horror movie that a scare is going to fall flat. A good comedy movie has multiple types of jokes in it. You don't rely on one dumb joke repeated for an hour and a half. Unless in the... you are Freiburg and Seltzer, in which case you make your entire career off one dumb joke told over and over again. They're the guys who did like Meet the Spartans and Dance Movie. and Oh, right. Yeah, and for my money, jump scares are the dumb joke of horror movies. It's fine to release a bit of steam or to prepare somebody for an actual fear that's coming up, but it is not good as the only thing you're relying on. Or the little brother of lame jump scares in contemporary movies is the over-reliance on the spooky doll. <laughs> I could go the rest of my life without ever having to see a weird-looking, scary uh, little girl doll with giant eyes and pale skin um, and often malevolent expression. That is, again, another stand-in for we have no scares of our own to give. Whether it's haunted, as in movies like The Conjuring and Annabelle, or simply there for atmosphere, like in this movie where you have a, a plethora, a veritable flood of scary children's toys, it's the same type of scare each time. So in that way, it is just like the jump scare. It's supposed to be the sort of uncanny valley fright, but it's nothing interesting has been done with them. They're just there as, like, window dressing. It's almost as though you should just write insert horror here over top of these dolls. This is prop horror. I'm stealing that. Of course. There is nothing actually done with the doll. It is just sitting there looking frightening. It was weird in this movie where a guy came on and smashed a bunch of dolls with a sledgehammer. Yeah, it was weird actually in how they bled out watermelon. <laughs> so stupid. And it is a shame because this movie moves towards some actual disturbing horror not in the house itself the spooky ghost house it's actually in the village that surrounds this house which is reasonably creepy and in which we see repeatedly children killing themselves off at the behest of the woman in black a girl drinks lye and coughs up blood we watch a girl burn herself alive these are moments that are moving toward an actual horrific aesthetic really it was the town that did it for you because see i found the town scenes so boring and even when you have like the children in peril everybody in the town is so lightly sketched that i think the deaths of these children don't really resonate because we i mean like this is not to sound like a horrible monster but Within the context of this yeah, movie, yeah, no, I understand. Just, it, they the don't... death, the death of a child, is always going to be horrific. But it would be more horrific if we actually knew some details about that child. Yeah, if we had any reason to care about these townspeople. See, for me, it's actually the moments in the house when it's not relying on creepy dolls or jump scares that I find more effective. Just because it seems more in the style of gothic horror of just a lone person in this giant house and the sort of sense of unsettling paranoia or anxiety that comes over them you could uh, the the sense of isolation as we talked about earlier with the cut off estate that gives such a strong atmosphere that you don't really need to do anything you don't need to have spooky ghosts jumping out of every nook and cranny you can just have this guy discovering these sort of the letters from Jeanette the sister of Mrs. Drablo the one who goes um, mad and eventually kills herself and as Arthur discovers each one, the handwriting becomes more and more um, chaotic 
and spider-like. And that's a, a, you know, a small touch that really sort of adds to the atmosphere of madness and cruelty that rules this house far more than a ghost appearing and flying at Daniel Radcliffe. I think that's where the sort of gothic style of horror really could work in this movie. And I would agree with you because contractually I have to as soon as you invoke the word gothic. One thing we know makes for terrible radio is differing opinions. Yeah, just in the sense that this movie is not good in terms of plot, it's not good in terms of character development, but it is very beautiful to look at. The cinematography is quite good. The props are well done in terms of the letters that you were talking about just now. The set dressing is great. And this all achieves its climax in the house. This is clearly where they've poured most of their budget. And yeah, it looks good. I just didn't find it quite as frightening as what is acted out in the village. I think that makes sense. In in the village, you actually get the following through of horror and the consequences which I just so happen to not find particularly interesting due to the poorly written nature of the characters. Whereas there's a lot of potential in the, in the estate for horror to be, it just doesn't manifest really <laughs> in any tangible way. Well, if you want to talk about poorly written characters, I think Ooh, there's something boy. that both of us could agree on, and that would be the female characters. For a movie titled The Woman in Black, women play, I don't even want to call it a secondary role, they're barely afterthoughts in this movie. None of the women are fleshed out. The only woman that has much screen time at all is a unkind joke about mourning. It's Janet McTreer. Um, Samuel Daly. Samuel Daly's wife, who has lost a child, and her mourning is now rather made fun of. She's adopted two dogs that she cares for as babies yeah it's kind of flippant toward that and hammer hammer is always kind of treading a line between horror and black comedy and i think you're right tom in that horror and comedy are very similar and they can often overlap with one another this movie though it's it's horror is all off and then it tries to be kind of darkly funny in a way it hasn't earned and it just comes off as rather unpleasant yeah, in more classic horror movies like Curse of Frankenstein, of course, humor is used to release tension. We did a whole episode on this, our last episode, on the Please Pass the Marmalade line, and that just doesn't feel like something that this movie has earned. It hasn't built up the tension yet, or really ever, for it to earn the release of having a Hermione Stranger character. I'm really glad we're getting to talk about Curse of Frankenstein because it means we don't have to talk about the woman in black. <laughs> the, yeah, so we have maybe three women who have speaking roles in this movie. Yes, um, we've got the wife of a pub owner who is abused. Yeah, we have the wife of the lawyer who always looks like he's stoned, who has maybe two lines of dialogue. And we have Samuel Daly's wife. Uh, who's played off as a kind of joke for most of it. And I guess the woman in black speaks in the... In the in for, the, for about 30 seconds Does the voiceovers the of the letters. Yes. None of these characters have any agency. And I find it so strange that in a movie that, that is supposed to be about a mother and her son and the loss and the irrevocable pain that the mother feels over the injustice of her confinement and the death of her son. The movie is only interested in how mourning affects the male characters, really. Yeah. It's, it's all about how Daniel Radcliffe's character and Karen Hines' character process mourning. We see a few scenes where Daniel Radcliffe and Kieran Hines drive up to 
a crowd of angry white men. And that just very much defines the entirety of this movie. It seems a very potent image for a movie that purports to be about how families uh, engage with and process through the loss of its members, but it's really just focused on the emotional responses of the men. I totally agree. And and of course, Hammer Horror has never been innocent of misogyny or problematic representations of women. In the 60s and 70s, women were consistently represented as sexual objects. But here, there's something else is going on, and it's no more progressive. What we've got in the female roles uh, in this movie is a divide between monsters and victims. What's interesting is that in a movie that's so clearly about how Arthur is obsessed with his wife's death, and he's always falling back into this sort of state of perpetual mourning, the woman in black's story is simply, she went crazy. There's no attempt to investigate it, it's just, she had a kid, the kid was taken away from her, and she went crazy as a result. It's basically the woman is hysterical and then her anger carries over into turning her into this monstrous ghost that preys on children which actually tom you pointed this out it's the woman in black's sister and that sister's husband who are the terrible people to her i guess maybe she's attacking the townspeople because they didn't do anything to help her but as far as we know she never really has any interactions with the people in the village no there's an illogical hystericism that is built into her character and i think that that really does her character and injustice because it means that she is not psychologically nuanced and it also means that she's not believable as a character of course a ghost is going to stretch believability to begin with not for me but it means that she is not a rounded character simply a force of rage and devastation and i guess that's fine for the ghost itself because you know we have something like the grudge but we never get any sense of a rounded character in the history of the woman in black when she's alive. She's always just this imperiled woman with no complexity or story to her. And it once again just means that they're taking up an old cliche without actually doing anything interesting with it. The story uh, with the ghost of the woman in black could be very effective, I think. There could be this sense of sadness or loss so the woman in black's character is all-consuming rage like she says at the end you know when we hear her just repeat over and over again never forgive never forgive and that's fair but it seems to really reduce the character down to this purely one-dimensional monster where i think you know the, the movie spends so much time trying to process the grief of arthur and, and samuel and it really offers no outlet for the woman in black. And that's what makes these characters so uninteresting is that they, they feel so mechanistic. I think I would agree with you on the whole, but I really like that moment actually at the end because that point comes after a very important moment in the plot that in a traditional ghost film would actually wrap up the plot. This movie is set at a point in the very early 20th century where Kieran Hines now has a car. Oh yeah, I remember in my history book, um, 1901, Kieran Hines gets car. <laughs> it's a very important part of the timeline. Compared to the earlier pseudo-Victorian movies of Hammer Horror's heyday, we've reached a point in this movie where technology has actually begun to revolutionize the existence in the British village. And this, of course, is symbolized through Kieran Hines' 
character who has a car, a automobile, a Thestralis carriage. And this actually comes up as a plot point in the movie. The child of the woman in black actually drowned in a marsh on the spit or the causeway out to Eel Marsh House. Because they now have an automobile, they believe that they can find his remains and drag them up through the power of this engine uh, out of the mud. And this way they can take the remains into the house and give them, leave them for the woman in black in order for her to find some peace and cease mourning the child. And what I like about this movie is that it almost has a twist ending. At the end of the film, the child's remains are finally brought into the bedroom. Daniel Radcliffe says, everything is done. And yet we have this sequence where the ghost is moving through the house and saying, never forgive, never forget. And the implication is that this trauma, this history, cannot be so easily brushed aside by technology, by easy narratives, by sentiment, by the way that a ghost story would naturally come to its conclusion. In this movie, the trauma of losing her child keeps her going, and it can't be so therapeutically appeased. I think that's a good point, perhaps giving this movie more credit than it deserves. Quite possibly. This is, again, I think a way of just sort of making this character pure unrefined hysteria, making her this kind of inaccessible force rather than an actual human or formerly human figure. The ghost only attacks children, has no interest in attacking the the uh, population of the village. So it is the this past, this sort of um, unsettled and traumatic past that you say, Tom, that I think is a really interesting idea, that this isn't a linearly recuperative movie where the Specters of the past are quashed by the powers of the present and the future. The past is preying on the future, and it only leaves the present in this perpetual state of loss, which is kind of what mourning is. And that would be really a sort of neat idea to follow through on. But as we've been saying all throughout this podcast, is not enough of an interesting story. And while we're talking about endings, can we talk about the ending? If we must. It's really strange and it doesn't seem to follow the rules of the movie either because as we go along the lore of this ghost is that the children who are claimed by the ghost end up being caught in her thrall at the end of this movie spoiler alert the boy who lived does not he ends up trying to save his son from an oncoming train and they both end up dying he has a happy ending where his son says, look, father, who is that woman? And it turns out to be Daniel Radcliffe's wife, Ginny Weasley. And they walk off happily hand in hand down platform nine and three quarters to who knows where. And then we see the woman in black staring on glumly. Miffed. She's been foiled. Basically, yeah, there is this sort of happy reunited ending. Now that's still very stupid. The problem with this is that they're not held in her thrall. They seem to be going on to some heavenly afterlife, and that completely breaks the formula that the movie has been trying to assert over us continuously. I've never liked the sort of happy ending, they all meet in heaven kind of thing. Daniel Radcliffe and his kid being killed together and maybe becoming ghosts together, and f sure, fine, I guess that works, even if they're not under the thrall of the woman in black. But having his wife show up and they're sort of reunited in heaven kind of takes the sting out of this movie that's supposed to be about mourning and loss and how it's never recuperated. And then like, oh yeah, but 
you know, these characters get a happy ending. They get to hang out in heaven or a train station at least forever. Whether it's on the level of rules or whether it's on the level of themes, this, this movie just bungles the ending. And this is a, all the other stories don't end like this. Most of the other versions of the woman in black end with um, Arthur's family dying, but he's still alive to tell the tale. Yeah. Uh, this Which one, makes a lot more sense thematically. Absolutely, because then he becomes just like these townspeople who he kind of defines himself against. He is another, you know, haunted figure that's left without any kind of future. And this one instead, he gets to go to heaven. Whatever. Well, since we have basically put this movie to bed at this point, shall we end with some movie recommendations? If, if we agree that maybe the only effective thing about this movie was the unsettling atmosphere of the house, what's your favorite haunted house movie, Tom? This is an easy one for me. I'm going to go with the 1963 movie The Haunting by infamous horror director Robert Wise, who directed perhaps one of the scariest movies that I've ever seen, which is Sound of Music. The Haunting is based off of Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House, so it is another adaptation of a successful ghost story. But this one is a more successful adaptation of a ghost story. You can say that again. There are very few effects in this movie. Uh, Most of it is achieved through soundscapes, and we never actually see any of the ghosts. They are consistently heard and we mostly get access to the horror through the excellent acting of the main characters i will say this tom that movie has maybe the most well-earned jump scare in cinema history as for me i'm gonna um go in a slightly different direction and pick the 1977 japanese horror movie house whereas the haunting is a sort of study in restrained atmospheric um tension building horror house is completely crazy from the jump it features talking watermelons headless monsters it's a complete phantasmagoric trip into hell through this haunted house and it's uh it's both very funny and very um disturbingly scary at the exact same time it manages to achieve both tenors that the woman in black completely missed the mark on and i think that about wraps it up for us for this episode tune in in two weeks time where we will be discussing the pre frankenstein hammer horror movie the quartermass experiment from 1955 it's a very different kind of horror than we've experienced on uh, hammer time thus far and um i think it will bring out some different opinions <laughs> on its efficacy in the meantime if you'd like to get in contact with us we have several social media outlets you can check out we are on twitter at hammer Timecast. Find us on Tumblr at hammertimehorror.tumblr.com. And we apparently have a Facebook page, uh, Hammer Time Horror Podcast. So if you would like to get in contact with us, find us through any of those venues. And if you have a preference for what movie we should be dealing with in the next little while, please send us a line. Until then, I'm Tom Stewart. And this is Riley McDonald. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.